Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Recorded live. Hi, everybody. It's, um, can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, because my mic, my, my headset, the wiring is, uh, you know, faulty, and so if I move too much, it crackles or gives out. But anyway, I guess it's working. So what I was going to say is, <laughs> hi, everybody. It's May 11, 2017, and it's time for my private audio call. Tonight, our special guest speaker is Pete Hendrickson. He's been on before, backed by popular demand. We love having him on. Thanks for coming on, Pete. Nice to have you. It's good to be with you. Thank you so much. What would you like to enlighten us with tonight? You've been getting out some good emails. I've been reading them, and I always yeah. love to read about the IRS and things like that. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I, I have actually posted a couple of um, particularly interesting things in the last few weeks, in the last few weeks' newsletters. Uh, two weeks ago, I posted a um, an in-depth expose of the uh, fraud that the IRS has been engaging in in an effort to uh, pretend that um, uh, what I'll call CTC-educated filings, and for those that are not familiar with Cracking the Code, The Fascinating Truth About Taxation in America, that was my first book on the subject of the income tax. And it's, it's the book that lays out the, um, the actual nature of the tax, the actual legal nature of the tax, how the tax uh, comes to be misapplied when it when it does, which is not all the time, but in in most cases for most Americans, um, if they pay the tax in in a routine way on routine earnings, uh, they are uh, being victimized by a misapplication of the tax, which has been going on for about 75 years now. Um, mm-hmm. And what Congress has provided to allow people to rectify uh, those improper applications of the tax when they happen. Um, anyway. Uh, uh, People who uh, make use of the information uh, provided in that book, um, which was first published in 2003, it's now in its 15th printing. Uh, during all of those years, the intervening years from 2003 till the present, uh, people who uh, have studied the book and learned what it what it uh, reveals about the tax have been getting uh, 100% uh, refunds of income taxes that had been improperly withheld or or paid in, and that, that, uh, that's all taxes, including Social Security, Medicare, and et cetera. And we, we, those in the, in the community of people educated by that information call the book CTC. So I'm going to refer to CTC going forward. People will know um, that's what I'm talking about. And the IRS and the, the federal government in particular, uh, during all those years, 14 years now, uh, during which these um, uh, acknowledgments of the accuracy of the book has, have been going on, which now is in a couple hundred thousand occasions, uh, and have also been trying to suppress the book um, and the information in the book uh, by any means possible, uh, ranging from uh, legal actions attempting to have me enjoined from being able to publish the book uh, to um, a, a, a 
practice in a number of a number of cases of um, uh, faked uh, frivolous return penalty assertions, which have recently been uh, discovered to all be based on a uh, an actual fake list of frivolous positions, uh, uh, one of which is designed to uh, pretend to be an official frivolous position. You know, describing something qualified for the tax, but it actually isn't on the, the the actual list produced by the Secretary of the Treasury, pursuant to the statute um, involved with frivolous return penalties. Um, it's it's completely it's a hoax uh, from start to finish, and um, as I said, that has recently come to light um, in in uh, considerable depth. Uh, even uh, to the point where the IRS and, and the Office of Chief Counsel were recently caught engaging in forgeries, um, attempting to um, run this scam and uh, and get through a prosecution or a, 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 a trial. I'm sorry, not a prosecution, but a trial uh, involving one of these fake uh, return penalties. Um, so two weeks ago, I published an in-depth expose of that uh, particular. Uh, little uh, affair. It's uh, it's very revealing. Um, the very fact that the IRS resorts to this kind of fakery um, is, of course, evidence of the fact that they don't have legitimate grounds to resort to for um, attempting to uh, discourage people from from filing educated returns. Um, so it's good on that front. It's also good because there are a number of people out there uh, that have been harassed with these. Uh, uh, fraudulent, frivolous return penalty threats, and they need to know about this and uh, and need to get uh, going on uh, securing the evidence of the fact that they've been victimized by this particular scam, which I refer to as the Argument 44 scam. That's the that's the the number designation given to the fake uh, frivolous position on the fake frivolous position list that the IRS produces on its website. Um, in, in, and, and pretends is the actual uh, secretary's list, which is a, a published document and uh, not at all the same thing. Uh, so I encourage everyone uh, that's listening to uh, read that uh, little expose. And, uh, and for those that um, have a pencil in their hands, I'm going to give you a URL that you can um, go to, and it'll... Uh, It'll take you to that write-up, and uh, you'll be able to uh, see some very fascinating stuff, uh, well worth uh, sharing with other people. And if you happen to be a person that that has been victimized yourself by uh, having made uh, educated filings and uh, and then been harassed with the frivolous uh, return penalty threats, it's a minority of, of people who uh, who have uh, filed educated returns. Actually, a pretty small minority, but nonetheless, there are. Uh, that that being many tens of thousands of people, there are therefore hundreds of people out there that have been subjected to this harassment, and uh, and so it's well worth knowing about that. URL is uh, losthorizons.com slash capital A slash capital I R S F R P F lowercase R A U D dot H T M. That's losthorizons.com uh, folder A and I R S F R P fraud. HTM. Or you can find that at the um, on the sitemap at uh, lostrisons.com. 
you scroll down to the section uh, titled the arms locker, you'll find it to be the third link in that stack of, of uh, sitemap links. So well worth seeing. Um, whether you're CTC educated already or not, if you're not, uh, it will uh, it'll get your heart racing and get you going. You'll you'll want to be CTC educated, and if you are already, uh, you'll both find it fascinating um, for its um, the, the acknowledgement quality that it offers, and also in case you happen to know somebody that has been uh, harassed with these uh, frivolous return penalties, you can get them launched on the uh, fraudulent return penalty pushback project. I'm assembling uh, participants in what will be either a multi-plaintiff or class action lawsuit uh, to um, respond to these uh, to these fraudulent um, penalty assertions, which are very First Amendment uh, uh, compromising and uh, and completely lawless, uh, really uh, quite outrageous efforts to get people to change the testimony. On their uh, tax return affidavits, and to um, uh, which I, I should say, the tax return slash affidavit. The tax return is an affidavit, uh, uh, and uh, they really this really needs to be um, slapped down um, hard and 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 soon uh, because it's absolutely outrageous. So that that page that got posted two weeks ago, uh, well worth seeing, um, and uh, and then just last week. Uh, I posted a um, what I think is a is a very telling uh, analysis of a, a 1984 um, Fifth Circuit uh, ruling uh, in a in a case in which um, an individual was appealing a tax court ruling. There's nothing remarkable about the tax court ruling directly. Um, this was a fellow uh, who was kind of confused about the tax. He he filed the Fifth Amendment protest returns and and. Uh, he had a bunch of kind of confused things in, in his mind when he when he was um, uh, doing his initial uh, filings or and or refusal to file or compromise filings and so forth. But the thing that was significant about the case was that on appeal, although he didn't apparently bring this up in tax court, on appeal he um, uh, made the assertion to the um, appellate court that the uh, uh, the IRS and the government and the judiciary have been mistakenly applying the income tax or administering the income tax as though it was a, um, a non-apportioned direct tax. And the, uh, the appellate court, Fifth Circuit, responded by saying, no, the Bruchaber court, the Supreme Court in the Bruchaber decision in 1916 said the 16th Amendment authorizes a non-apportioned direct tax. And they said it in those, basically those words. In fact, um, Give me one moment here. I'll bring up the actual uh, the actual language of the uh, ruling because it's worth uh, worth hearing verbatim. Um, and the uh, the ruling is significant because in uh, in saying what they said, the uh, the court, the Fifth Circuit Court, uh, uh, states Bruchaber exactly the opposite of what it actually says. Here, here's how the uh, here's how the court summarizes the Parker's. Um, tax trial and, and claim says Parker's 1977 return contained only his name, address, social security number, and signature. The income and deduction portions of Parker's 1040 and 1040X forms contained only asterisks uh, or the entry none or object 
self-incrimination. Parker did not provide the information essential to a determination of tax liability, but attached to his protest return excerpts from cases and other materials discussing the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. At trial, Parker conceded unreported income from wages, pension benefits, and long-term capital gains, but challenged the commissioner's allowances for rental losses and medical expenses. He also opposed the uh, willful refusal to file penalty that he apparently was subjected to. The tax court upheld the commissioner's determination, including the imposition of the penalty. Finding no error of fact or law, we affirm. Now, all that's pretty rudimentary. There's nothing remarkable there. Uh, just somebody who didn't really know what they were doing and you know, arguing a position that was really indefensible. But the reason this case is significant is that in appeal, Parker made this contention as summarized by the court or as stated by the appellate court. He said, the IRS and the government in general, including the judiciary, mistakenly interpret the 16th Amendment as allowing a direct tax on property, and they kept in quotes, wages, salaries, commissions, etc., without apportionment. In response to that, the appellate panel says this. The Supreme Court promptly determined in Bruchever v. Union Pacific Railroad Company, 240 U.S. 1, that the 16th Amendment provided the needed constitutional basis for the imposition of a direct non-apportioned income tax. Probably most of the people listening to this call are familiar with Bruchever and and are aware that, that what the Fifth Circuit said in that 1984 ruling is exactly, exactly the opposite of what Bruchever actually said. The Fifth Circuit basically lied outright. In that yeah. So what? That, that what part, would you do? Outright lie. Well, the the, the the in in making that outright lie, the court is actually admitting the correctness of what Parker proposed. And there's a reason for that, and I'll get to that in one second. I want, I want to, for those who are maybe not familiar with Bruchever, I want to read what Bruchever actually says, um, or at least the portions that I excerpted. It's actually it's a 25-page 20, opinion um, uh, without uh, paragraph breaks. It's, a, it's really a really dense opinion, uh, unfortunately. Uh, it, it, it's clear enough in the reading, but it's a bit of a struggle to read through. So um, you know, portions are necessarily excerpted to to make it make sense. But here's, here are the portions that are relevant to this. We are of the opinion, this is the Bruchever Court, a unanimous Supreme Court, by the way, 1916, addressing the first challenge to the income tax, the revived income tax that was uh, relaunched after the adoption of the 16th Amendment. And it was challenged by a fellow, Frank Bruchever, who argued that the, um, the tax under the 1913 revival um, amounted to a non-apportioned direct tax and therefore was unconstitutional. And the Bruchever Court says, we're of the opinion, however, that the confusion is not inherent, but rather arises from the conclusion that the 16th Amendment provides for a hitherto unknown power of taxation. That is, a power to levy an income tax, which, although direct, should not be subject to the regulation of apportionment, applicable to all other direct taxes. And the far-reaching effect of this erroneous assumption will be made clear by generalizing the many contentions advanced in arguments of support. So, the Bruchever Court is saying no. The, the Bruchever is arguing that this, uh, this, uh, the 16th authorized a, uh, a non-apportioned direct tax, and it did no such thing, and um, it's, it's an erroneous conclusion. So, after generalizing the many contentions advanced in argument to support the erroneous conclusion that the 16th Amendment provided for a power to levy an income tax, which is both direct and not subject to the regulation of apportionment, 
The Brewster Court goes on to point out that the very suggestion of a non-apportioned direct tax is crazy. Well, they don't actually say crazy, but that's what they're meaning. Because if, the, if that were true, it would cause, and this is quoting the court again, one provision of the Constitution to destroy another. That is, it would result in bringing the provisions of the amendment, supposedly exempting a direct tax from apportionment, into irreconcilable conflict with the general requirement that all direct taxes be apportioned. Now, that's the Brewster Court itself. Uh, saying exactly the opposite of what the Fifth uh, Circuit Court of, Opinion, of, of Appeals says that it said. And this is not a case where the, by the way, just it doesn't matter so much, but just to make the point, uh, this is not a case where the Fifth Circuit had issued an interpretation or, or just said something like, well, everybody knows that you know, the income tax is a direct non-apportioned tax or anything like that. They said specifically that this is what the Brewster Court said. And the Brewster Court has you just heard said exactly the opposite. And it's not like this was, you know, obscure. Uh, I want to carry on with a little bit more of what I've got posted on this uh, uh, after those two excerpts from the Bruce Court directly. Uh, in 1916, the Cornell Law Quarterly reported on the Bruce decision, and this is what they had to say, among other things. The amendment, the Supreme Court said, judged by the purpose for which it was passed, does not treat income taxes as direct taxes that simply removed the ground which led to their being considered as such in the Pollock case, namely the source of the income. Therefore, they are again to be classified in the class of indirect taxes to which they by nature belong. Harvard Law Review, 1916, reviewing the Bruchaber decision, says this. In Bruchaber versus Union Pacific Railroad, Mr. Chief Justice White, upholding the income tax imposed by the Tariff Act of 1913, construed the amendment as a declaration that an income tax is indirect, rather than as making an exception to the rule that direct taxes must be apportioned. Well, again, another uh, pair of, of contemporaneous expert voices saying what the Bruchaber Court said. Uh, later on, uh, F. Morris Hubbard, the Treasury Department legislative draftsman, testifying in Congress in 1943, the income tax is an excise tax with respect to certain activities and privileges, which was measured by reference to the income which they produced. The income is not the subject of the tax. It is the basis for determining the amount of tax. And the amendment made it possible to bring, the 16th Amendment, made it possible to bring investment income within the scope of the general income tax law, but did not change the character of the tax. It is still fundamentally an excise. Later on, uh, Howard M. Zeritsky, the uh, uh, legislative attorney at the American Law Division of the Library of Congress, uh, produced in 1979 a report uh, entitled Some Constitutional Questions Regarding the Federal Income Tax Laws, in which he says, talking of the Bruchaber decision, the Supreme Court, in a decision written by Chief Justice White, first noted that the 16th Amendment did not authorize any new type of tax, nor did it repeal or revoke the tax clauses of Article I of the Constitution, quoted above. Direct taxes were, notwithstanding the advent of the 16th Amendment, still subject to the rule of apportionment. Again, saying what Bruchaber had actually said, the opposite of what the Fifth Circuit says in 1984 in Parker. And one more uh, authority uh, I'm going to read here. This is, again, the Supreme Court in Stewart Machine Company versus Collector of Internal Revenue. This is a 1937 case, uh, 20 years uh, or so after, uh, 21 years after the Bruchaber decision, uh, restating it again in no uncertain terms. If a tax is a direct one, it shall be apportioned according to the census or enumeration. If it is a duty, impost, or excise, it shall be uniform throughout the United States. Together, 
These classes include every form of taxation appropriate to sovereignty. And then quote some, uh, uh, some or cites to some cases in support of those points, including Bruchberg versus Union Pacific Railroad, by the way. And then goes on to say, whether the income tax is to be classified as an excise is in truth without critical importance for purposes of this analysis. If not that, it is an impost or a duty. A capitation or other direct tax, it certainly is not. So everybody, all the authority, consistently throughout all the years since, have recognized that Bruchaber said the 16th Amendment does not authorize a non-apportioned direct tax, and the income tax is not that. In fact, in Bruchaber elsewhere, Bruchaber specifically says the income tax is by nature an excise tax entitled to be enforced as such. What it is, it's an excise tax. The, the Fifth Circuit in Parker lied. It simply lied. It wasn't making a mistake of interpretation. It wasn't... Um, you know, speaking excessively casually or whatever, it simply lied, and uh, and in doing that, it it accomplishes an admission. And the reason for that, I want to bring up something else here so I can make the point about the admission. Yeah, but how can it stand? How can what stand, Parker? What their decision. Well, it, it stands, I, because, it stands, it stands I mean, only because nobody knows enough. Nobody knows the stuff I just read to you well enough to uh, to go in and, and point out that it's wrong. Um, no one has done that. Uh, Parker didn't know to do it. Um, it would have been nice. He should have. He should have gone right back with a petition for uh, on-bank rehearing and slapped that panel with the things that I just read to you. Just line them up and say, Your Honors, the panel got this one wrong. Uh, you know, when you're doing a petition for a hearing, you don't say they lied. You say that they, you know, yeah. made an error, <laughs> whatever. But that's what needed to be done, and it didn't get done. But this constitutes an admission, and here's the reason for the admission. Um, Parker specifically challenged the court with the allegation, with the, the statement that uh, the uh, Courts and the IRS and the government were uh, mistakenly applying it as a uh, non-apportioned direct tax. And the court essentially stood silent in response to that. They didn't, they, they, their, their answer to it was a falsehood. Now here, the law, here's what the law says. Here's how the Supreme Court describes the relevant law to that uh, event. Um, this is in Baxter versus Palmigiano uh, in 1976. And the court says, indeed, as Mr. Justice Brandis declared, speaking for a unanimous court in the Todd case, which involved the deportation, silence is often evidence of the most persuasive character. And then some citation. And then, and just last term, in Hale, the court recognized that, and quotes Hale, the failure to contest an assertion is considered evidence of acquiescence. If it would have been natural under the circumstances to object to the assertion in question. That's Baxter versus Palmagiano in 1976, U.S. Supreme Court. In lying in response to Parker's assertion, the Fifth Circuit did even more than stand silent in response, because a lie is not an answer to the to the thing. It's, it, it, it is at at minimum it is silence. But in this case, it's an outright falsehood in response, and all that really does is prove that the Circuit Court recognized its duty to answer the assertion. It knew it had to say something. 
and yet it lied. And that is as strong of an admission under the doctrine discussed in Baxter versus Palmagiano as you can get. So what Parker amounts to is a, an acknowledgement by a Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that the government has been misapplying the tax, treating it as though it's a direct non-apportioned tax when it's not. And, and that's a significant admission. Um, it's well worth reading, I think. I, again, I want to urge everyone listening to, uh, uh, to uh, visit the website and go to the mid-edition update where they'll find this uh, commentary, a portion of which I've just read to you, um, up as the second article. Uh, the first article uh, this, this week is a series of victories, uh, which is to say people getting complete refunds. Um, something I'm always uh, most delighted to uh, to make as the first feature in every newsletter uh, edition. And so what we see uh, in uh, in the beginning of this uh, of this uh, new mid edition update that uh, posted on Monday, we see a $25,120 check from the U.S. Treasury uh, consisting of every penny withheld from Steve Tilden uh, during 2016, uh, Social Security, Medicare, and all. Uh, a $1,832 check, again, complete refund, uh, everything to uh, Richard A. And, uh, and uh, Kara Meldrum, uh, uh, a young lady, a, a teenager, uh, working her first job and having filed her first educated uh, set of returns, uh, has already gotten back uh, everything withheld and paid over to Michigan during 2016. Not a whole lot of money because you know she's a she's a young young lady and, and only had four hundred and forty six dollars uh, taken from her for the state of Michigan against the possibility of an income tax, which didn't prove to be um, relevant in her case. Didn't didn't prove that she uh, actually had done anything taxable, and uh, she didn't know any tax, so she got every every penny back from from Michigan and is waiting for everything back from the from the feds as well. So, congratulations to all those wonderful people. They, uh, they yeah, that's great. Yeah, absolutely great. Uh, so, anyway, so that's all in the newsletter, mid-edition update, uh, Monday's edition. Um, the uh, frivolous return penalty hoax thing uh, can be found in the um, main uh, newsletter post, which went up two weeks ago, and is still on site um, on the main newsletter page. Uh, so, you know, everyone out there, please uh, visit, um, read through these documents, uh, look at the evidence. Uh, you'll be uh, you'll be very pleased for people in the tax honesty community. This is uh, this is uh, candy store stuff, and uh, go indulge your sweet tooth. And, and then sign up for the newsletter. Those are so informative. I I look forward to them. And also um, give out your website again. That's losthorizons.com. That's right, losthorizons.com. And uh, and yeah, thanks for the, the reminder about signing up for the newsletter. Uh, uh, love to have uh, everybody uh, do that, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, that's all I can say. Continuing education. Um, we have some people with their hands up. If you want to ask or answer a couple of questions, uh, yeah, sure. for that. Sure. Okay, Central California. Go ahead. You've been unmuted. Do you have a question for Pete Andrick? Central California, you've been unmuted. Hello, hello. Okay, well, when you figure it out, 
I'll leave you. Uh, well, I'm going to mute you out. If you figure it out, just press star eight again, and that'll put your hand up. Uh, next up, Roddy K. Go ahead, Roddy. Uh, good evening. Uh, first time caller, long time listener. Love you. Love the show. Um, right, my Mark. question is, if I if I can play Dave Dave Davil's advocate, um, what about all the people who have allegedly gotten burned by your uh, your stuff there? What do you say to those detractors, sir? You, you said it yourself. It's allegedly, uh, uh, Rodney. That's uh, there. The what you have to understand here is this, and and you know, I'm, I'm my work is the target of a um, a lot of those allegations, uh, and the reason for that is uh, because it's the right, it's, it's it's the truth. It is the the um, uh, cracking the code is the, the the bomber that's actually over the target, and it's it's the it's therefore drawing all the flack. Um, it's been 14 years, uh, Rodney. Uh, 14 years of complete 100% refunds being issued from the federal government and 36 state governments, year after year, month after month, week after week, nonstop. Hundreds of thousands of them now. Hundreds of thousands. Billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. Um, the uh, it, it, it on its face just. No, if, if uh, again, again, thank you. Uh, if I, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. You, yeah, I'm what, sorry. You she, gonna, muted, she muted me. If, if uh, I no, could I play Dave, you. uh, you're back. Yeah. If I could play Dave, uh, Dave, Dave's advocate one more time. But what I mean, what if all these tens of thousands are just falling through the cracks, sir? Uh, that's that's uh, kind of the point. They're that's not. The you point can I was see they're all making, posted that's the point I was on making, the web. Rodney. That's ridiculous to suggest that 14 years and Hundreds of thousands are falling through the cracks, and and frankly, if you if you study the efforts to suppress my work, I'm the uh, the subject of intense attention from the IRS. Absolutely intense attention from these folks. Uh, the, the, when when people file a, a, a cracking the code educated return, in fact, I want to I want to just actually like cut to the chase here, and I, because of course I have this subject and all this this. Sort of thing addressed very thoroughly on my website, um, and I encourage people to, to go there. And here, here's what I, I want to say: This is at the bottom of a stack of about 1,200 examples of these complete refunds that I have posted uh, over the years. Um, and and here's here's what I have to say about it. Remember, these are a few that 1,200 or so examples that are posted, uh, which you can look at and include the in 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 a very large number of cases, the complete filing that was associated with them, by the way. These are but a few of the hundreds of thousands of such refunds being secured from the federal and 38 state and local governments continuously since 2003 by readers of Cracking the Code. Uh, keep in mind, every one of the filings producing these refunds and other victories went through elaborate scrutiny by the tax agency, as is true of all CTC-educated returns. After all, the IRS is not some uniquely naive entity that just sends out checks because someone asks for them. What a ridiculous thing to suggest. Contrary to self-serving myths promoted by the IRS and its fellow travelers to keep you from grasping the evidentiary significance of CTC-educated victories, all filings claiming refunds, not just CTC-educated filings, are challenged by default. As the Taxpayer Advocate Service of the Department of the Treasury describes it in its 2013 annual report to Congress, and this is a quote from that document, 
The return integrity process is complex and multifaceted. A tax return must travel a long path with many potential roadblocks before the IRS accepts it as filed. The main goal of the IVO is to stop fraudulent refunds before they are issued by identifying potentially false returns, usually through wage or withholding reported on the returns. The IRS does this primarily with the Electronic Fraud Detection System, which was built in the 1990s. EFDS runs all individual tax returns through various filters to identify characteristics that may indicate a high risk of fraud. There's also something called the Questionable Refund Program. Uh, in particular, all CTC-educated filings have always been scrutinized, both by the EFDS and the Questionable Refund Program, not to mention every IRS employee who sees them before the returns have been processed and the refunds have been issued. The vast majority of such filings show and claim a refund of withholdings, all withholdings, while showing no income at all. And many are even accompanied by detailed explanations of exactly what is being expressed with the return. And I have some examples, there's some links you know, going to a couple of particular examples of those uh, cover letter explanations. The simple glaring evidentiary fact is that every check and credit issued in response to a CTC educated claim, all the hundreds of thousands of them being continuously issued since 2003, have always passed through the gauntlet and been knowingly and deliberately approved. And if you still somehow harbor doubts about this, click here. This is a link to uh, uh, the Every Which Way But Loose page. And read a few of these particularly elaborate and unmistakable examples of heavy agency attention to CTC-educated filings and claims, not one of which would ever play out the way it does where the tax agency is not in agreement that cracking the code is completely correct. Remember, too, that these victories are in, uh, in enforcing our fundamental law have been flowing without interruption since the beginning of intense IRS efforts to suppress CTC in 2003. And this section just recites uh, the suppression efforts, and so it contains a lot of links, and it's going to be a little... Uh, difficult to uh, to follow, and so I'm not going to go through the the entire thing. Um, you know, this, this when when I first published cracking the code, uh, my website at that time, the week that I first published the book in August of 2003, my website was downloaded by the IRS and showed up on taped to my door or rubber banded to my door uh, about six months later as part of a subpoena. Um, and it was being presented as evidence in, in what was what ended up being four individual legal actions attempting to, in, to have me enjoined against being able to publish the book. Um, all of those efforts failed. All of them ended up being dismissed on the government's own motions within a year or two. During that time, during that time, my wife and I became the first Americans in history to get a complete refund of everything withheld from us, so 2002 and 2003. During that same period, that we were, or that I was being uh, uh, assaulted with these four legal actions. Um, the, the, obviously, the IRS was was completely aware of what was going on, and yet it was obliged to issue our refunds anyway. Um, there's nothing slipping through the cracks. Is the point? Uh, the the one page that I uh, referred to in reading that little segment at the bottom of the bulletin board page, uh, the every which way but loose collection, is specifically a collection of about probably are 50 episodes up there now, uh, of circumstances in which the IRS was uh, explicitly and very deliberately trying to resist uh, educated CTC-educated filings, uh, and in some cases drawing matters out for a year and a half or two years of very intense uh, focus on these filers, trying to, to uh, browbeat them 
uh, into reversing themselves uh, or in some other way overcoming their educated filings before ultimately surrendering and either sending them the, the check that they had claimed or the closing notice uh, in abandoning its own efforts to assert that a tax was owed or what have you. And these are fully documented. So go to the website, look at these uh, episodes. You will see the evidence uh, in black and white. Um, uh, it's, it, it's, the facts are the facts. Uh, there's no slipping through the cracks going on here. This is all completely open-eyed, and um, this is a reality. This is a reality. Cracking the code does explain the actual truth about the tax and show and shows you the reader um, everything they need to know to determine whether or not they're being improper. They have been being improperly taxed, um, how it has come to happen, and what they can do to fix it. Uh, that simple. Very good. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, absolutely. All right, you ready for another question? Sure. Okay, Seven, you've been unmuted. You have a question? Hello, Seven. Did you want to ask Pete a question or make a comment? Maybe you have your mute button on your phone muted. I hear you clicking around. Okay, well, press star eight again when you want to come on, and I'll unmute you. We're going to go to next up, Geek Pile. Go ahead, Geek Pile. You've been unmuted. Hi, Pete. Hello. Hi, Angela. Hi. Hey, I'm curious. How long do we got Pete for this time? <laughs> um, I don't know. I, yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do at least the hour, um, and I may be able to do uh, a few minutes past that. Excellent. Um, well, I got a bunch of questions, but I you know, I know there's other people waiting. But um, I'm currently in collections for feds for 2012 and 2013. They got a lien on me in the county, and they're kind of quiet. But the state is on my case. They're actually settled for those years, but now they're on my case about 2014. My question is: Do I need to wait to correct my 2014 filings for the federal first before? The state there's, there's, no, there's, there's no relationship between the two things. Uh, the okay. each 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 uh, tax agency is independently um, served with the allegations uh, that would be involved in the in you know the assertion that a tax that taxable activity has been engaged in. In other words, okay. when when a payer produces an information return like a W two or a, a 1099 or a K one, uh, they submit a copy to the individual involved, of course. And they also submit a copy to every tax agency that is relevant in their view of things. Um, so mm -hmm. the IRS will get a, an, an individual copy. The state will get an individual copy. And if there's a local jurisdiction that, that uh, uh, imposes some kind of income tax, it would get its own individual copy. And the reason is because there's no relationship uh, legally between those entities, even though, even though it's a fact that the state and local governments are actually taking a piece of um, the same action that the feds do. Income is the same thing for all three entities. but um, uh, And when I say income, I mean the product of taxable activities. I don't mean all that comes in income. I mean the subclass uh, income with quote marks around it right. that is the, the federally connected income. Um, the state is just taking part of, uh, they're, they're imposing a, a partial tax on federally connected income. Uh, it's not state connected income, it's federally connected income under the terms of the Public Salary Tax Act, 
you already know that. So you may already be CTC educated. Is that what I'm gathering? <laughs> yeah, a bit. I got to get your latest copy of your book, but yeah, I've, I've been reading okay, your stuff excellent. for sure. All right. And I'm on your mailing list and your website. I'm all the, I'm on there all the time. Um, okay. My question also, um, you, you mentioned one time for, um, I believe even for Angela's case, uh, the difference, I, I wanted to have a little bit more specification on the difference between when I do a correct return as opposed to correcting information uh, that a collection is being based on. Uh, okay, you're, you're talking about the, the um, making a claim for a refund as opposed to just addressing bad data on which collections are being based? Correct, like my collections for 2012 and 2013, if I want to correct that information because it's too late to get the money for those years anyway. Like, I don't oh, care. I just want them off my back. Not too late for you know 2000, what I'm saying? Not too late for 2000. Well, it might be too late for 2013. It depends on when your your original filing was there. But, but yeah, you right. know what you're saying. Um, uh, yeah, there, there, there is, there's a three-year statute of limitations for the, the look-back period for reclaiming right. amounts improperly withheld or paid in. Um, but there is no statute of limitations for uh, correcting the record on which collections activities may be based. So you can go back 20 years, and I've had right. you know, readers have done that. I mean, I've got yeah. posted, uh, the 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 uh, success stories of people who've gone back. Um, I think 15 years is actually the longest that I've got posted. But um, uh, but that process looks like what is it? Just, is this process looks the same as just filing exactly, a return? Exactly, it's exactly the same. Exactly the same. Okay, excellent. All right. Well, Angela, if there's other people waiting, I can, I can, you can mute me out, and I'll, you know. Well, we have two more people waiting. But if did you, what else did you want to ask? Um, if I want to keep more of my like current like paycheck, and I'm gonna, you know, I'm submitting, you know, what I mean, like, I'm, like it says married five or whatever, but I want to get more from that. Do you know anything about? I mean, I know everyone has to claim their own, you know withholding calculation and all that. I was just curious. You're talking about W4? Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah, there, there, there's some mythology out there about um, you know, claiming exempt, uh, which obviously is not claiming exempt because if it were, then the system would yeah. continue to take Social Security and Medicare from you, would it? Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it does because exempt is just a special ca category for people who are actually subject to the tax, but for whatever reason, are uh, you know, making the uh, the assertion that they're not going to actually owe any this this particular period. Um, right, but I also don't want to go crazy and say like, oh, I got 15 exemptions and I know yeah, I no, don't. No, but no, like... Absolutely, I mean, you, W4 is is best viewed as a perspective document. It's it's something that is is prepared in case circumstances arise in which it would be relevant. It's like it's like getting a fishing license. Um, you might get one. Um, the fact that you've got one doesn't mean that every time you throw a hook in the water, you're fishing in a place that you need to be licensed to fish, right? Because when you get a fishing license, it's not, it, doesn't, it isn't necessary to have a fishing license to fish in the pond in your own backyard. It's only necessary right. to fish in, in, in a public lake. Um, so you can get a fishing license, and, and that in and of itself doesn't mean that all your fishing that's going to get done from that point forward is actually in you know public facility that actually requires you to have a license in order to do it. It's just something you have just in case. One of those times you happen to throw your hook in a public lake, then, you're, then you've got the license and everything's you know, you're good to go. Uh, W-4 is, is that same kind of a document. It's, it's a if it should be proved to be the case that I am engaging in taxable activity, then this is how I want 
any required withholding to take place. Um, and so in, in that light, the thing should be filled out correctly according to that prospective circumstance. So it, you know, you've, it should be filled out with the idea that, okay, what if you know, it turns out that, that at some point or another during the course of my, my uh, work with this place that I'm submitting this document to, I end up doing uh, taxable activity uh, and you know, work as a quote-unquote employee and then making quote-unquote wages, um, mm -hmm. what, would be the, what would be the appropriate thing to have on this form under those conditions? And, and that, in my mind, is the, is the best uh, way to plan things. Now, that doesn't mean that, that you know, it should be, it should be put in, in blank, uh, blindly. Uh, it, I have a chapter on this subject in, in Cracking the Code, and, and I, I, I covered the subject pretty thoroughly, I think. It's called W4 is the blind leading the blind down a primrose path, because unfortunately most people fill these things out um, you know, without any idea of what they're doing and why they're doing it, and they mm -hmm. get told to do it by somebody else who has no idea why they're doing it and why anyone you know, should be doing it or what the consequences or implications or you know, presumptions that are supported by it. Um, but in that chapter, it discusses the subject of um, uh, you know, the exempt concept, and, and it also discusses the subject of uh, a, a reservation of authority and uh, withdrawal of authority. Uh, so that it, there's no misunderstanding on the part of the payer that the submission of a W-4 is somehow a you know carte blanche uh, uh, either uh, endorsement of the prospect that the work one is doing is actually taxably you know a taxable activity and, and so, you know the pay is subject to withholding, um, or that uh, that withholding is being authorized by the submission of that document. Neither of which is normally the case with most you know in, in most circumstances. So uh, read that chapter um, and, go mm -hmm. to the, and go to the portion on the digital appendix. You'll find a, a, a URL at the end of that chapter to the digital appendix. Um, and I have a link there with more information on. Okay. Digital Excellent. Appendix. Okay. Thank you so much, Pete. Thank you, Angela. Thank you. Okay. Let's see here. Next up, oh, Roddy K. Go ahead, Roddy. Hello again. A, fr a friend and I are having a chat, and I can't explain it so eloquently like Peter has. He has documents and all that stuff. Could uh, kind of a two question, if you can remember it. First of all, can you explain to uh, my friend who's listening and others how the Social Security, when you say you got a full refund, that the Social Security and the FICA can only be and are taken out under the tax structure, and also. I don't understand that question exactly. Can you rephrase that a little bit? What do you mean can only be taken out under the tax structure? Well, that's the way I say it. But I'm saying Social Security is taken out. When people sign a W-4 and all that stuff, they take out Social Security and FICA. That is a tax. Of course it's a tax. It's an income tax. And can you explain how it's set up and how it's taken out yeah. under the tax structure, blah, blah, blah. And, and the next question, I'm sorry, before I get muted or get busy. Can you explain what is if, – if working and getting paid for work is not a taxable activity, why are they even presuming one is a taxpayer? Oh, is oh. it because the company that you work for is erroneously reporting uh, themselves as a withholding agent, or is it just the fact they're reporting they paid you? Robbie, let me start answering um, before you go on. Um, first of all, working for a living is – sometimes taxable, 
I mean, working and getting paid for it, sometimes it's taxable. There are, there are certain kinds of work that absolutely qualify as taxable activities, and they're subject to the tax there. It's not all kinds of work that qualifies, but there are some kinds that do. And the tax system, because it's designed uh, to take in as much revenue as possible, um, has as an operating default mechanism, or an operating default, the presumption that any work that gets done that they learn about must be of the taxable variety. Take that for granted until it's proven otherwise. So by default, um, this presumption exists, and it is, it is a presumption that is fortified uh, in, in a complete and uh, legal sense. When the individual that is making payments for any given work reports those payments to the government on forms that are specifically by statute intended to only be used for reporting payments for taxable activities. And those reporting forms are called information returns, and most people encounter them as in the form of W-2s and 1099s and K-1s. Those forms are only to be used for reporting taxable payments for taxable activities. So when your average company produces a W-2 and sends it to the IRS saying that uh, Joe Smith was paid $40,000 last year, um, the IRS looks at that form and says, oh, Joe Smith is being alleged to have engaged in $40,000 worth of taxable activities. Uh, it, here, here it is right here on the reporting form, the taxable activity reporting form, known as a W-2. Let me interject right quick because you're on something good. Go ahead. Does a, does a, doesn't a any Joe Schmo company have to officially be an authorized reporting agent with the proper forms? Uh, a withholding agent? You have, clar you have to clarify that question. You mean, do they have to in order to properly use those forms? What? Yeah, don't they have to probably be authorized to be a withholding agent and have said form on file? No, no. If, 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 they're, if, they're, if they're prepared to mimic the behavior of a, of a withholding agent, just as if you're prepared to mimic being a federal worker, uh, the government is happy to take you at your word. So it's just the if fact a, that they got an employer if a company identification number is good enough, right? That that's a very strong support, you know, presumption supporting component. Part of the elements. If someone has okay, I'm going to mute out, and uh, hopefully you'll cover the Social Security being attached and how it I'll works. Absolutely, absolutely get to that in a moment. Uh, so what we're talking about right right here right now is actually the subject matter for the most part of the of part two of cracking the code and so i encourage anyone uh, that wants to to learn the entirety of this subject to, to read that read the, that portion of the book uh, the uh, the uh, nutshell um, story is what what i was just saying uh, about uh, the uh, reporting of payments on uh, information returns uh, constituting legal allegations that the payments reported were made in connection with taxable activities, and they will be taken as true unless and until they are rebutted. Uh, most people don't know this, and so what they get a reporting form, or they get a reporting form sent to them describing payments made to them. They imagine that they are under a requirement, a legal requirement, to uh, transcribe those, the numbers on that reporting form onto a 1040, and sign it under penalty of perjury, declaring themselves to believe that to be true, to believe it to be true that the amounts they were paid were for taxable activities. 
and that's how most people end up becoming subject to the tax. Um, just that simple. Uh, knowing the difference between what is properly reported on, on uh, an information return or what is, is to be properly reported, and therefore what is to be properly reported on a, uh, on a tax form in the income lines uh, makes all the difference uh, between being subject to the tax and not being subject to the tax if one shouldn't be. Um, regarding the Social Security question, Social Security and, and Medicare are both surtaxes. That's S-U-R taxes, S-U-R-T-A-X-E-S. Um, they are sur income, income surtaxes that are added on uh, as, a, as a, um, a, a bump in the normal tax uh, applied to um, taxable activity earnings. And they're measured by, uh, or they are, they are uh, measured by the amount of uh, money paid uh, in connection with those taxable activities. And in the case of Social Security and Medicare, they only apply to the first, I think it's about $118,000 now of uh, earnings uh, that qualify as wages. And that's wages with quote marks around it because in tax law, wages is a defined term, specially defined term, has a statutory definition. It doesn't mean just pay for labor. It means pay for taxable activity labor. And, uh, and uh, the, the first, uh, whatever it is, 118000 or 118500 of that pay uh, is subject to the surtax. Um, all of it is uh, subject to the, the overall tax. Uh, all of it constitutes quote unquote income, that is to say the taxable variety of what comes in. Uh, and so that's how Social Security and Medicare factor into the structure. The fact that they are called employment taxes, by the way, um, is uh, just a nominal matter, it's just a label. Um, they are taxes on income, uh, and the law uh, imposing them says that very, very plainly. Uh, in fact, forgive me a moment here while I CTC down so I can quote the law in detail. Uh, old age survivors and disability insurance. In addition to other taxes, there is hereby imposed on the income of every individual a tax equal to the following percentages of the wages, as defined in Section 3121A, received by him with respect to employment, as defined in Section 3121B, because wages and employment are both custom defined terms in tax law. They do not mean getting paid for your work, and they do not mean working for somebody. Uh, so, anyway, I hope that answered that question, I think, uh, probably, and, and if it didn't, um, the, all the details about that will be found in uh, part two of Cracking the Code. Okay, next up, Donaldson. Go ahead. Go ahead, you've been unmuted. Thanks. Thank you, Angela. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Yep. You have a question? Uh, kind of. I was wondering. Okay. I mean, all I can think about, I, I mean, I have a question, but I also have a comment because I've been sitting back listening, and I don't even know who this is. I know he's, I know the name, Pete Henderson. Is that right? That's right. I think we've even spoken before on this. We have a lot in common, actually. I think we've man we managed to hit on a couple of like solid, you know, uh, frequencies, you know, like together, like hey, we're on the same vibe. But the po here's what I think: like, have you ever thought that the void for vagueness doctrine could could enter into 
uh, an argument, and I'm sure it has, right? How many times, that's my question, has the void for vagueness doctrine entered into uh, the court with regard to a tax issue? Oh, it, it, there was a time when when uh, it happened periodically. It wasn't wasn't with great frequency, but in the early part of the 20th century, there were several cases that made it to the Supreme Court in which void for vagueness was a, an element of the case being argued. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's it's a you know it's a valid and recognized uh, judicial doctrine. It doesn't get applied nearly as often as it as it ought to, and, and particularly since the 1940s. Beginning in the in the 1940s, there was uh, something of a sea change in the judiciary. Uh, prior to that time, in fact, I, I just in, in the that uh, one article that I uh, told people about at the very beginning of our conversation here uh, concerning the Parker case. Um, so I can bring up the page. About that, 1940s. 1940s was the the early 1940s was the time when the income tax began being uh, misapplied systematically. Prior to that time, uh, the uh, prior to 1943, um, the average uh, rate at, of, of family tax return preparation averaged over all the years the tax was implemented uh, prior to uh, the early 1940s was less than nine percent. Fewer than nine percent of American households filed an income tax return. Uh, after 1943, uh, that the percentage was uh, in the in the upper 90 or well mid 90s, mid 90 percent, hit a high of 93 percent. Cool, thanks, man. Hey, can I? I haven't. Can I? Were you finished, or do I? Can I answer no, no, it? No, I, I wasn't finished. We were, well, you were talking. Sorry, about, go ahead. It's okay. You were talking about void for vagueness, and I'm I'm saying that prior to the 1940s. Um, uh, Judicial rulings could be taken uh, largely um, at face value, and and void for vagueness was uh, a, a consequence, an outcome of uh, judicial review of congressional enactments on a much more regular basis than it ever has been since. Um, since then, we, it, it practically is a concept that has practically disappeared because the courts have become uh, simply rubber stamps for most anything Congress does. Um, right. So, 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 in a sense, what you're saying is that through the what I just heard was that through the modern structure of the legal system, there is a you know a degradation you know of our of the original intent of well, the courts. What we have is we have a we have a much much less uh, uh, quality uh, uh, actor in judicial positions than we once did. There's a lot less sand in the judiciary than there was. <laughs> Okay, and so you don't blame that. How do you feel about the, the individual, quote unquote, so-called people, if you will, <clears throat> taking responsibility for their knowledge levels and their their ability to be cognizant of what's going on on the paper and off? I mean, do you do you do you like? How, what's your stance on taking responsibility? Well, here's here's the here's the thing that people have to understand, and and you were going to the void for vagueness thing on the basis, I suspect, of the proposition that the tax law, for instance, is incomprehensible and and therefore you know ought to just get tossed, or or you know never should um, 
uh, face judicial support uh, in any enforcement action. Well, not necessarily. I mean, it could. There's that's an argument true. there. Yeah. yeah. Well, but that's not true. The, the tax law is actually quite simple. It requires a lot of work to um, uncover the details, uh, but I've done that uh, for everyone. And all it requires now is reading a 256-page book, as has been demonstrated by tens of thousands of people across the country over the last 14 years. It's quite simple. These, these people are not all rocket scientists, and this isn't rocket science. This is actually pretty, you know, straightforward stuff. It's written in a kind of a complex way, and, and uh, you know, you have to be capable of reading some pretty quaint, uh, or what today, you know, it's kind of quaint English styles and so forth. And over the course of time, it evolves. Uh, you know, you all know mm-hmm. how that how that happens in language. Right. But cracking you know, the code. Been, it has been done for you. So, uh, you know, for for the average person, you know, you spend six hours studying a book, which you know may be enough to read it through a couple of times even, and you're done. You've learned it all, and uh, you can then go forward and and look out for your interests completely effectively. Um, so to say that it's void because it's vague. Uh, is not valid, and the courts won't do that in the in the case of the tax. As I said, early part of the 20th century, there were a few occasions where a tax case, you know, Gould v. Gould was one of the you know, the most famous, and, and there are a couple of others uh, in which a court said basically, you know, when the law is, is uh, you know, when there's doubt, when they had a doubt about the law, you know, you have to uh, find in favor of the defendant and or the, the one against whom the tax is being alleged and that kind of thing. Uh, but that doesn't happen anymore. Um, and it isn't going to happen, and it shouldn't happen now because the, all the that, that law has all been laid out now, and it's very accessible, uh, very simple, and um, and the the government uh, uh, acknowledges it um, routinely, and so you know that's just not a question any longer. The void for vagueness thing isn't a question, and it's always been the case in American jurisprudence that individuals are responsible for knowing the law themselves. You know, as unfair as that can be in some cases, uh, you know, if, if the if the law is written, if it's available for you to look at, then you're responsible for knowing um, the limits that the government operates under, and knowing if the government is attempting to exceed those limits. That's your problem. That you have, you have to know it, and you have to know what the law says and uh, and you know how it works. That's just you know, it's just a fact. Okay, one more. Um, Claude five two one zero eight. You've been unmuted. Do you have a question or a comment, Claude? Claude five two one zero eight. Did you want to say something? <laughs> oh well. All right. Oh, was that you, Pete? Uh, yeah, that might have been me uh, echoing your chuckle there, uh, Angela. I, I understand how frustrating it must be to uh, be there uh, operating and, and, and having it not work out all the time. But let's, yeah. let's, let's, well, let's do one. Let's do one more question. And, uh, and then, okay, uh, Donaldson's back. Go ahead, Donaldson. This is it. Yeah. Okay. So basically, I thank you for unmuting me, Angela. Did I you was, get knocked actually, off? I did. I actually cut myself you, you off. Missed, that was me. You missed his whole, oh, man, you missed his whole answer. I didn't miss the whole thing. Not, not, oh, not the okay. whole thing, but part of it. And and I, I did catch, I think, the gist of it, um, which is that the void for vagueness doctrine is kind of a staple of of the defense. Well, it, it, was, a, to, it was at one time. It's, it's, a dead, it's a largely a dead letter now. Uh, for, one, for one thing, the courts have, are way out of the habit of um, – 
of uh, uh, overruling any enactment of Congress on any grounds whatsoever at this point. In fact, there was a period of time uh, from the early 1940s until 1995 in the Lopez decision that not a single law was deemed unconstitutional by the Supreme Court in, in that entire period of time. It's like 45 years or, or, or more. Wow. Uh, not one single enactment was found to be unconstitutional by the court. So wow. they, they do not find laws to be void for vagueness any longer, even though that doctrine is you know, an obviously valid doctrine and was at one well, let me ask you. Let me ask you a deeper question. Let's, let's, let's dive into the, to the depths of your knowledge base with this question, hopefully. And that is, how far can the people's knowledge take them? Like, if the people say, hey, look, it's so much, it's so void for vagueness, not, not just because it was void for vagueness in the past, but also because now the people have risen to the level of being able to comprehend that even court cases have claimed, right, that you need to, before you can determine legislative intent, you need to determine the meanings between the words on the paper, you know, of the words. And, and so this is where contract law comes into it. So I guess my question would be, couldn't a private person's contract for correct sentence structure with everybody that they contract with be a reason to keep as a rule of the court that sentence structure and void out the IRS doctrine or, or, or statutes based on their, their, whatever they're entering into the record because it actually would be proven as void for, for vagueness based on the um, um, <clears throat> conduct of the, of the parties from, from the past. You see what I'm saying? So the, well, the, the, the idea that there needs to be a uniform uh, uh, predictable uh, use of language in law and in, in interpretation of law um, is certainly valid and sound. And, and courts do actually you know, have that as a doctrine. Um, there are rules of statutory construction and, uh, and, and laws to be interpreted in the uh, meaning of words uh, that uh, was current at the time laws were passed. And so there is a, an opportunity for anybody, any, any party involved, to know what a law means. Um, the problem is that the courts don't recognize that, that if they find themselves uh, called upon to interpret a law, that is by itself uh, prima facie evidence that that law uh, probably should be deemed void for vagueness because we didn't, we didn't elect judges to write our laws for us, and if they're interpreting them, that amounts to what they're doing. Uh, and if our legislators are writing laws so incomprehensible that a court needs to, to scry, out, scry out the meanings of them, then those laws should simply be thrown. They shouldn't be given a meaning by someone who wasn't elected to do that, um, which is the case when we have judicial interpretation. So, uh, so yeah, I'm agreeing with you that 100% uh, that, uh, that we should have that consistency. Um, as far as the application of that to uh, IRS uh, or you know, tax-related subjects, I don't agree. Um, well, okay. And here's the reason. The, the, the tax comes into play legitimately because people have chosen to do taxable things. Um, it comes into play illegitimately in cases in which people have been alleged to have done tax, to have chosen to have done taxable things when they didn't, and they have not rebutted those allegations. 
All that's required for them to understand in that is that an allegation is being made and that they have an opportunity to respond to it. And if they don't respond to it, then they're acquiescing by silence, just as in that Baxter um, doctrine I read earlier in the, in the show. Um, they're agreeing. By, by saying nothing, they're letting stand uh, as agreed to um, that allegation. And um, so once that allegation is made and, and is agreed to, either directly or, or by allowance, by, by allowing it to stand, what it says is that that individual has also agreed to all of the provisions and considerations and special little rules and 3,500,000 words of tax code and all those things. They've, that all comes as a package deal. If you've done the taxable things, if you actually did um, elect to have uh, to engage in taxable activities, which is entirely voluntary, it's entirely your choice, if you did choose to do that, then you're subject to all those rules, and you're and you're responsible for knowing them, and you're responsible for you know everything that's associated with them, all the baggage that comes along. Exactly, only, you said rules. Only oh, if, let only me interject. If, only if that starting point is the case. But that's, that's if you don't mind. Oh, go ahead, real, real that, quick. That's what I'm. That's really what I'm talking about. Is that starting point? Because you talked about the rules a second ago. You mentioned the rules. And 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 what I'm what I suggest is that there is an aspect of the Constitution that supersedes this any determination of the IRS, okay? And it well, comes sure. down to con. There's a lot of aspects. Well, the contract let's, laws let's, let's, and what is one of them. But let's but let's let's be clear. There are things that are taxable, and 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 so it really it's it's a matter of of um, allegation and rebuttal. That's what the whole that's what the whole thing is about. You know, if if you've actually done taxable things, then then you have one set of circumstances. If you haven't, then all you're dealing with is allegations and rebuttals. And um, you know, the the Constitution doesn't really enter into that picture. Congress is constitutionally authorized to collect taxes. Uh, it simply has to do it within the parameters of uh, apportionment. If there are taxes of a direct nature, and that you know is, is a tax laid on the states essentially. Or, right. well, um, you know, uniformity in the case of excises, but that means a tax on privilege. And, and that's, those are voluntary. Those are taxes that involve voluntary activity. So, Angela, he keeps on saying a bunch of good things. I want to ask <laughs> him another question, another question about personal jurisdiction, because this is what brings me to, the, to that question. I mean, how, what gives them the personal jurisdiction to levy an income tax, whether you, the, you, you define chosen. income – let me answer, Donald, and uh, and I am going to then have to go because we're 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 okay. quarter after. Thank now, you. I had said, but um, what brings that into play is the election to do the taxable things, and and um, and, and so it, it isn't that this that that jurisdiction is being um, imposed by fiat. Um, it isn't the heavy hand of the, the king that is you know on your shoulder, um, bringing that jurisdiction into play. It was your own choice to uh, make use of make profitable use of federal privilege. And, and, and if you've done that, then you've adopted the jurisdiction. If you've chosen to put your lemonade stand on federal property because it's the best spot in town, then you've agreed that the, that the, that the feds can take you know, whatever percentage of your, of your quarters that you get for selling lemonade uh, they propose. That's just the way it is. And on the other hand, if you keep your lemonade stand at the end of your own driveway, 
you don't have to pay them anything. So, um, and the last thing I want to say uh, to, to Donald and anyone else that you know continues, if there continue to be questions about any of this stuff, is um, this is what the book got written for is to answer these questions and explain how the whole thing works. And uh, and anyone uh, can get that book. It's uh, you know it's just twenty nine ninety five, and you will have the answer to um, the means of recovering what might be as much as 45% of your uh, wealth uh, each and every year for the rest of your life. And, and it's uh, called? Cracking the Code, The Fascinating Truth About Taxation in America. Go to LostRisons.com. Uh, if you want to order the book, you go to LostRisons.com slash cc.htm. That'll get you to the order page. And... Uh, Boy, I look forward to posting the victories of every single person listening to this show. Angela, it's been a great pleasure. Well, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate your time and energy and sharing with us all your knowledge. And uh, hopefully you'll come on again soon in the not-too-distant future. (laughs) Thank you so much. Have a good evening. Good night. night. Thank you. You too. All right, everybody. That was it. What do you want to do now? (laughs) <laughs> I believe uh, Magic Mike, <laughs> Magic Mike, <laughs> Money Mike, <laughs> Magic Mike, there you go. Money Mike said he's going to have a call right after this one. So uh, let's see here. I posted the number. It's uh, If you want to go to it, it's 142306, 142 306 and uh is that right mike you want to go now or what uh allow about 10 minutes oh, hello okay yeah. about approximately approximately 10 minutes even after the call's over i mean i just it'll be it'll be fairly quick if, if, you know less than 10 minutes approximately okay well i'll stay on for a little while longer Okay. No problem. I guess. Uh, yeah, and then I'll I'll get my stuff on, and then you know, like uh, you guys can still be on, and if uh, if you guys are still on, maybe I'll simulcast with you. Okay. All right. Alrighty. Let's see no, here. Uh, all right, Donaldson, you uh, what? Did you want to say something? Somebody else. Seven. There you go. And Great Kazoo, Hi. you've all been unmuted. Hi guys. So, Hello. Hi. Hey. Hello. Hi, Angela. Hi. Well, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can you hear me okay? Great. Yep, I can hear you okay. Okay. The last time I was on your show must have been about three years ago. I don't know if you remember me when um, uh, Carl Linson Ballet. Okay. And he was talking. He was talking to. Um, we were talking from the UK on your yeah, show. I remember. Okay, so when Carl came to the UK in 2013, it was me who was in the background of that trip along with Ballet. Do you remember now? Yeah, I, be- I remember. Okay. okay, the reason why I was ringing the show, Angela, is that um, have you heard of a recent case in the Fifth Circuit? Um, Turner versus Driver. Is that familiar? Turner versus who? Driver. Driver? Yeah. Nope. Nope. 
Tell I, me I all about, about that. that. Oh, okay. Sorry? I heard about that, yeah. Okay, you're familiar with it. I was trying to post the link in the chat, but for some reason I can't. Um, I'm logged into the chat as Blue Boy 50. But Is I can't. Well, let me, I'll unmute you. Hold on a second. Blue Boy 50. Oh, you're yeah. not muted. It shows you here in the chat link. window. I don't okay. know why I can't type. But if, if you can yeah, look I'm at that, probably. if you can look at that, that particular case, um, Turner versus Driver, because Philip Turner, I don't know if you're familiar, but these guys who do the Fifth Amendment, <laughs> test, excuse me, they go around doing Fifth Amendment. They do the, the First Amendment test, so they go around the country doing a First Amendment audit on police stations and things like this. Now, okay. I'm not particularly keen on people who do that, but um, in this case, Philip Turner is very, very active. And he's actually changed. He's got a high court ruling in the Fifth Circuit that allows freedom of speech for the First Amendment to videotape and whatnot. But what's interesting about that case, um, if you get to if you get to listen to the uh, the oral arguments, um, so if you put into YouTube um, Turner Turner versus Driver, Fifth Circuit, December uh, the sixth. 2016, you'll get the full uh, audio transcript of it. Now, what's interesting yeah. is, what's interesting is, if you listen to that transcript, the, the oral argument, sorry, um, I don't know if, I, if you'll hear this, but I'll, I'll, try, I'll try and play you a little section of it. Um, it's the first time I've heard, because the argument is between the Prosecution, the, the prosecution, sorry, uh, the, the, uh, the, the lawyer working on behalf of Driver, who's, his full name is Lieutenant Driver, who works for the police department. And if you look at that particular uh, video, you'll see the link to the original incident. So you've got a defender who's defending the state on behalf of the police. And then you've got um, Philip Turner, who's bringing the action of false arrest. Now, what's interesting about this transcript, I don't know if you can hear it, but I'll try and play it to you, is the wording that, this, uh, that the state is using when it's talking about um, the police officers. Uh, well, well I'll, I'll play it to you, and you, you can, I don't know if you can hear this. Can you hear that? Yeah, we can hear it. Okay. On high alert. They, they see somebody out there filming a secure gate through which they drive their personal automobiles, have questions, it's an attack on not just police, but police stations themselves, and an attack on Dallas with high caliber weapons and pipe bombs in the recent months, had police on, on high alert. They, they see somebody out there filming a secure gate through which they drive their personal automobiles. Doesn't that sound strange to you? What do you mean? Strange how? But you have the state and you've got a, a defender talking about the private automobiles at the back of the police station. 
The police never use that word. They always use vehicle. Huh. So, because because I'm pretty active in the UK, I'm beginning to understand that we approach this thinking that you know these people don't know the mean the meanings of these words. The more and yeah, more, yeah, you know I what? I'm going to have to go listen. I'm going to have to go watch the video a little bit more yeah. in depth because I, you know it was hard to pick out. Well, I mean, I could hear what he was saying, but I didn't. I couldn't understand what he was saying. No, yeah, no, you'd have to listen to it in its full context, but what's relevant about that is him using the word private automobile. The state okay. prosecutor using that, the state defender using that word, because that word is in the private, as you know. So the point of, the point of what I'm trying to say is that a lot of these people, the gatekeepers, actually know the information and they operate privately amongst themselves, mm-hmm. but they enforce the, the persona onto the public. One of the things that I'm, I'm quite interested in is because no one's really addressing the elephant in the room. If we all know that uh, the government is treating everyone as an artificial person, then why don't we just bring that into the light? If, um, and what I mean by that is if we put a freedom of, what I'm trying to do is put a freedom of information request into on, on this side of the water and a simple question like does the government or does the government through forced authority or whatever you want to call it automatically assume that the people are artificial persons? I mean, if they answer yes or they answer no, uh, both ways, it's going to come to life because all of the legislation is obviously written for persons. But the police officers over here who are peace constables, in their oath, their oath is to swear and protect the uh, the human beings and the people. But the legislation makes no mention of it whatsoever. So I think that there's a legal argument for constructing a case, because the uh, government is a corporation, you can use the uh, Consumer Credit Act, the Consumer Protections Act. You can bring all of these assumptions into the light and and they can either deny or admit. Either way, it's brought to the light. Are you talking civil or criminal, sir? When you say the government makes assumptions, are you saying they're making assumptions in civil cases or criminal cases or both? They do both. Well, in both. And it's not only... So you're saying in criminal cases? Sorry. No, I'm I'm saying that the government can only talk to you through an artificial entity by the nature of itself, regardless of what it is. Right. You know, if you're talking about common law and common law crimes, then yes, you're going to be, you know, the justice system is slightly different. Okay, but what but, if they did? What if they did answer yes? We deal with you in the artificial person. Now what? Well, that is causing harm because you're always presumed to be in the public, and you're never going to have a private life, and that's going to cause harm and distress. If you're going to uh, have all these so-called assumed obligations placed onto you and you, didn't, you weren't aware of the true standing of those obligations, 
that brings out the fraud and the deception and everything else. If, if you've got a constitution that swears to protect the people, but the government legislation never mentions them, I think that's quite significant. Yeah, but uh, they're not obliged to tell you. You know, it's up, it's up to you to figure it out. No, what I'm saying is, instead of instead of trying to figure it out and teaching everybody individually to take all this knowledge on board, the people with the knowledge should hold the government's feet to the fire on behalf of everybody mm-hmm. else. Because it's not practical for everybody to learn this knowledge or to have been through a particular situation that ignites them down this rabbit hole in the first place. You have to be traumatized with a particular event to get the, the passion to go and find out, you know, how you can rectify the injustice that was done to you. Not everybody is going to be in that situation. So the people who are talented with putting legal arguments together, you've got the people who are using their standing as a man, you know, you can put all of that knowledge together to bring out the elephant in the room that everyone knows is there, that used to be a secret, now we can fight it because we know it's there, but no one's mentioning it, we're just calling it jurisdiction. But it is an elephant in the room where the presumption is that you're an artificial entity to begin with. Yeah, but there's going to end up to be a problem here because, number one, nobody wants to hear it. Right, you just go up to the average guy and try to explain this. If he already has no interest in, he's perfectly happy being an artificial person and, and not recognized as a life form. You're, there's no way you're going to convince him. I mean, the cognitive dissonance is going to kick in, and he's just his, his ears will smoke, and he'll shut down, and he'll just walk away. You know, you can't force it onto people who really don't care. And number two. If you managed to like get on the news or something and it became the biggest story of the century, you know, the government is gonna recognize, hey, uh, we just lost control. Now we need to roll out the army and the tanks and attack and and restore order is what they'll claim that they're doing and they'll arrest everybody and collapse the system and start over with a dictatorship or a communist, you know, socialist society. I don't, I don't think that that's the, that's the aspect I'm looking at it from. I'm just looking at peace officers and police officers are two different things. You, if you're going to take an oath, you take an oath of office for that office of peace constable or peacekeeper or peace officer. But you're being confronted with or you're interacting with uh, police enforcement they don't have any jurisdiction whatsoever. But the police enforcement, although they take an oath for one office and then perform a totally different office, they don't realize what they're doing. If no, they know. They they know. They, they'll have well, to know, I know because... That, I feel that a, a, a certain percentage do, but the people who are actually on the ground implementing all these codes don't understand the difference between artificial persons and, and, and man or woman. And that's what's causing the problem. As it is done, so it is undone. The, the, the people who are implementing this and so-called informing on you and writing all these tickets for, you to, for your appearance in administrative hearings, 
these administrative hearings, the police who were, in, who were giving you these these bits of paper believe that they you you have to appear in a court. Yeah. Um, so I think that if if the front line is educated with a simple difference between what is uh, an artificial person and look at the code, if you look at the wording, uh, you know, of the constitutional laws, and you look at the codes. The wordings are totally different. They can see that. So, if a government, 90% of America believes that they've got a digital government, but it's de facto, de facto governments have to be exposed as a corporation, and they should be treated as such because all corporations are bound to supply a particular service, and if they don't, they can be held accountable. Just look at it like you know someone's causing you an injury from McDonald's or whatever it is. There's no difference, you know. So yeah, I think that called, it needs ult- to be. Sorry. It's called ultra virus, ultra virus action. They're coming outside of their. It's like Walmart right, enforcing right. their employment code on people cutting through the parking lot or something. You know, they say, you know come out to your car and tell you you can't come in because you're dressed like that or you've been drinking or. You know, mm-hmm. they, they don't have that. They don't have that right to tell you because you don't work there. They don't have a contract, and that's how you got to see mm-hmm. it. The the that's whole right. birth certificate and artificial person thing was created for the sole objective to contract with the artificial. Well, the birth we call not, the birth, Yeah, the birth certificate is not a contract. The driving license is not a contract. We've already proven that here in the UK. It's, it's right, just, but when you take it down and, and show it to the DMV, now you're the registered agent. Just like Title no, Five, Section Five Fifty One says, it's not a, know, it's you, a kind of a quasi contract. There's no uh, uh, there's no collateral involved. There's no mutual exchange. There's not even no, any it's, it's just it's just a, it's just a persona. The driving license is a persona. Whatever it is, it's just a persona. I'm more interested in, if you know what the word obligation means, then you wouldn't look at these birth certificates and driving licenses as contracts. You have to create an obligation. And it, they cannot prove where the obligation was created because you, you have no obligation. So um, without obligation, you're not compelled to do anything, regardless of how they want to phrase it. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, driving's a privilege and, and, and all the rest of it. You know, Carl has shown everyone that you can use this persona when you need to drive. There's nothing wrong with having that driving license while you're traveling because it saves you from being shot or harassed or whatever it is. But the police officer at the time is making the assumption that you're driving. It doesn't mean that it's true. So these, these personas are exactly what they are. As a man, we need to operate go through borders or whatever it is, a passport's a persona, but they're not you. They're just a persona which you use for your benefit when you see fit. But they cannot create an obligation for the man, ever. Right, you can't be compelled. Sorry? You can't be compelled to... uh, And and going back to the original argument is that the de facto government, which is a corporation, can only talk to corporations. Therefore, you can prove that the the people, you know, they, this is always mentioned a lot in America, the people, by the people, 
the people are never mentioned in statues ever. Right. Well, so you can, some you, of can them, you can the, prove that the, the statues, the the statues that are in line with common law, like say murder or kidnapping or something like that, it would yeah. say instead of person, instead of people, it just says whoever does whatever is subject to, you know, whatever, 20 years in prison or $100,000. Yeah, that's fine because it's a common law. You've actually committed a crime as a victim. I'm talking about the victimless crimes that are stripping the population of their finances. That's the major problem in America or in England or the westernized world where there's a bar association. The problem is victimless crimes, not not victims, you know, you know, real crimes. So, and it's the yeah, presumption. Well, if if you you remember the Nuremberg trials, the yeah. famous response was, "Oh, I was just following orders." But there was another guy who was on trial in the Nuremberg trials, and they asked him, "Why did you?" push all these people into the gas chambers. Why'd you gas them? Why'd you kill them? Why, why'd you sick the dogs on them? You starved them? You did all this? Why'd you do it? And what did he say? No one complained about it. No one complains. When people don't know what they don't know, they're not going to know there's something wrong. You know? It's, everybody's just going along with it, and the police, even if they know or not, they're still going to pretend that they don't know just in case you don't know. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I talk to, it seems like everybody around here where I live is a retired policeman. You know, my aunt's married to one. I go over there for Christmas. I say, hey, what's up with the birth certificate? Are they registering humans? He just turns around and walks away. He, he, he knows about it. I talk to the cops online. They tell me I should join the force and stuff like that. I said, I don't want to hurt people. You know, that's not my thing. And I try to talk, tell, teach them this kind of stuff, and they just shut me down. They say, I need to believe in what I'm doing is right. They don't want to know, after 10 years of being a cop, that all this time they were the bad guy, you know. And they have that level of, it's like the doctors, you know. I get in fight with oncologists all the time in arguments, telling them that they're deliberately poisoning people when you can cure cancer, you know, so easily. They don't want to hear it because it's a lesser charge if they're just incompetent in their gross negligence, but if they know about it and they still continue to act and give people poison, now there's there's an intent to cause harm, there's murder involved, or at least a manslaughter, uh, you know, but they don't want to fall into the trap. See, if you if they know you're setting them up, they're going to change their attitude and be like, oh, maybe this guy knows something. You know, I, I've had encounters where I, I cop come at me all pissed off and I just yell at them, you know, and that's never a good idea because a lot of these guys are on steroids and they just rather taser you and watch you flop around like a fish while they change their batteries to shoot you again. You know, I mean, you have to be respectful in a way but still not take any shit. And, uh, you know, as far as proving, proving this stuff, I, I, I don't tell people what, what it is. 
I just show them stuff and say, hey, you know, explain this. You know, somebody, I, I'm confused. You guys are all experts on this, and I don't know nothing. I'm a big idiot. Here, read this. Tell me what that says, you know. And they'll, they'll be more involved because they want to help you. They know you're an idiot. You've already admitted that. They want to help you. They'll read it, and then something clicks in their head, and they're like, oh, wait a minute. What is this? What is this? I don't know what it is either. You know what I'm saying? I understand. I understand what you mean. I mean, but, I've just got to the stage. I mean, I don't know if it's spending those weeks with Carl when he came here. I was already um, pretty active a couple of years before Carl came. Um, so my technique is quite simple. Uh, I know how an obligation is created, and I know that I'm, I'm not obligated to 95% of the capitalist dominatia um, uh, paperwork that drops through my mailbox. So if I don't recognize uh, the addressee because it's deceased or whatever the case may be, it gets returned to sender. And that yeah. could be administration. That's what I do, too. Uh, court <laughs> yeah. I do the same damn thing. The mailman asked me, is there a person here? I said, no, there's no person here. Only people. So if, if, they're re if they want to be forceful about it, someone's going to turn up with a signature sooner or later. But as far as I'm concerned, if there's no signature, it's just stationary, which it is. That's what paper is, stationary. And unless you give life to it, it's stationary. So um, my life is pretty simple at the moment. I mean, the reason why I'm mentioning the, uh, you know, the, the potential action to expose it is because uh, we have a thing called the Bills of Exchange Act here. I'm, I'm, I'm supposing you've got something similar over there. Now, because of the bankruptcy, as far as America's concerned, 1933, and, the, and England would be 1931, um, all of the uh, future earnings, the debt, the credit was put onto the backs of the, of the labor of the people. So all of the resources, because the government was bankrupt, there have to be a remedy, uh, was given to the people. So if, if you're, as long as you are a domestic household, you shouldn't be paying electric, water, anything to do with the everyday running utilities of your home. And through the Bills of Exchange Act, it shows you how to, to offset those bills because everything's prepaid. Now, if people are dying because, you know, it's cold and they can't heat, that, heat their homes um, every year, I don't know what the number is over here, but it sometimes runs into the hundreds, if not the thousands, of old age pensioners and people can't afford to turn their heat on because they can't afford to pay the bill. Not knowing that the, a, a, um, a domestic household uh, wasn't liable in the first place. You see, these are the injustices that you can't go around and individually teach. It just needs to be exposed, in my opinion. Yeah, well, I mean, if you start off with that, you're going to get more people to listen to you because the money is a pretty big motivator if they think that they can, you know, cheat the system in some way and get free electricity just by, you know, sending a few letters. You know, they're 
probably more willing to get on board, but they'll be cautious, you know, saying, okay, you do it first, and if you don't go to jail, then next year maybe I'll try it, you know. No, I don't think it's anything to do with money. Money is the wrong. Thank you. Money is the wrong motivator at the big, at, at the at the tip of this spear. It's that's one of the reasons why me and me and Bally and Carl fell out because the people who really need the help are the ones who can't afford it. So it's not about um, being some guru genius who can generate money. It's about getting the information out there so everyone is aware. And that changes the environment in which you live. Uh, you can have little wins based on your knowledge, and you can be quite comfortable based on, you know, the, the baptism of fire that you went through to get to the stage that you are. But that doesn't. I got, help no I got a question. Find, you know. Yeah. Thank you for unmuting me, Angela. The guy that uh, you said you you have firsthand knowledge, uh, you're with Carl and uh, Bali. That's right. Like yeah. uh, now I have no. Uh, Nothing is Carl anything. I'm just asking questions, you know. Um, mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on Bali accusing Carl of lying about his uh, case and Bali's father losing in court? Do you have any comments on that? Um, I had already fallen out with them. I'd gone to court to put the initial paperwork in, and then by the time that the court, the case had progressed where Carl said that he'd gone to London. I knew that Carl was lying because if you listen back to the original recordings, he he, he said that he, he mentioned something about the courts being open 24-7. And he went yeah. down to a particular court building and he, he got the, 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 the master to open up and got the judge and blah, blah, blah. Now, when he came to the UK and he went down to London, he... He told that story verbatim, exactly how he told it in America. The American guard said exactly what the English guard said, the timing and everything. Straight away, I was justified because one of the things is that Carl Lynch has got a very strong radio persona and he sounds like he's sent from heaven. But But the actual person is totally different to the radio persona. That's my. So, him, yeah, he, I mean, it, a lot of people do that. Everybody's known to do that. You hop it up a little bit just to get attention. But while you're while you're saying that, if you could elaborate more, do you have like maybe Bali or or you, if you paid Carl and what successes anyone has had? Do you know of any? Um, me me personally, I've had successes using Carl's formula, but Carl hasn't. Had a, uh, I haven't given Carl a case where he's been successful for that person. Um, okay. I helped. I helped someone before Carl came, and uh, this person didn't have a lot of money. Uh, his case was more or less resolved before Carl came. He put three hundred pounds into my bank account, and I took that um, really. I was really uncomfortable about it. Now, the reason why I put that £300 into my bank account because Carl insisted that he, he show some good faith, you know, if Carl was going to create some paperwork for him. Um, when he did the UK column um, interview, uh, the, the suit that he's wearing in, in that interview 
was bought from that £300. But the guy, he did not solve that guy's issues. He donated so Carl, £300. So, wait a minute. So someone that was supposed to help Carl bought him a suit for help, pretty, pretty much? Well, he no, paid no, $300. He, he put $300 he in. Yeah, go ahead. He put £300 in my account, and uh, Carl and Bally insisted on having that £300. Even though I'd done the majority of the work, but like I said... I oh, I got you. You did for, the for help. The, the Somebody paid you, yeah. and they thought they should get a yeah. cut of it. Okay, okay. Yeah. Well. But I, but, but um, they, the, the money was used to buy clothes for Carl, because he came, he came off the plane in a red kind of a light racing jacket, blue jeans and cowboy boots. He didn't quite fit in <laughs> to the UK. Well, well, this is this is Angela's call. Now, let's just say for the people listening, these are all. I mean, we have no first knowledge. I mean, this is all your story. So. Yeah. Yeah, but I I, I trust. You. I mean, you sound sincere. Uh, I, that's about all my questions, I guess. Uh, thank you, sir. You're welcome. So, what's your name? My name's Colin, Angela. I'm, I'm Colin. Blue, oh, Blue Boy. Okay. I know who you are now, Colin. I remember yeah. you now. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you came on and shared your information. That's, are you going to send that Freedom of Information Act request to anyone well, in particular? Well, I, well I, I'm, I'm just, there's, there's people here, Angela, who are much more proficient at legalese than me. Um, I learned legalese to a certain degree but but some of the people over here uh, are taking on barristers in the high courts at their own game and being quite successful i've got no um inclination to you know put that time that amount of time into learning chinese as carl would say um i, I like to understand the true meaning of words um you know and, and then use that to my benefit so I, I, I stay in a private, I, I stay on the common law side, really. Uh, I'm just trying to finish my personal trust, my family trust. And once I've got that together, I think I'm pretty secure. Um, so that's where I'm at at the moment. Well, keep, in, keep coming on and letting us know what's going on so we can follow yeah. how you're doing. Yeah. yeah, I think Bali's having some success as well. I mean, obviously... I we I had a standing row in a hotel car park with Bally and Carl because you know Bally was manipulating Carl a lot, but Carl couldn't see it at the time. And it was a good friend of mine who's, who, after we parted ways, he said to Carl, "You've you've made the wrong decision. You've, you've chosen the wrong person." Now, what transpired because I didn't come onto your show and and give my side of it or explain anything. They were bad mouthing me and making me look like. You know, I was dishonest or something. I just kept quiet because time will bring everything out into the light. And uh, I heard Carl be quite emotional about Bally stealing his stuff and things like that. So everything's worked out the, the way it is. If people conduct themselves in a certain way, you don't need to get revenge or be bitter. You just leave it to time. The creator will uh, will work everything out. Yeah. A- Angela, so, can, I, can I play Donaldson and ask one more question? Go ahead. I feel like Donaldson. I got one more question. What's the story? Uh, we still discussed it today on various uh, calls. What is up with this damn dictionary? Was there a dictionary? Was it basically everything from Metam Online? 
What does Coral Dictionary? I don't know. Yeah, I, yeah, no. I think it was just a mixture of, you know, a lot of the words that he found through his research. Obviously, he did rely on etymoline um, to, to get a lot of his root um, definitions, uh, Latin definitions. But really, um, the strength in Carl's dictionary, and I did see quite a, a quite a few pages. He'd gone through A and B, and I think he was up to about G or F at the time. And they were quite important words to understand from a common law perspective. So he wasn't rewriting the English language or anything. He was just coming up with the the oldest and truest definition of the root word. So, so his what, own, what basically his own interpretation, if if you will. No, I wouldn't say no. his own interpretation. No, I'd say he was he was he was trying to find the roots of the word. So he'd go back to its original meaning as far as he could go back, and hence now, a lot of the. Has Bali, uh, I mean, it's none of my business, but if he, if he does, I guess it's legal. Has he made a profit? Like, what's the deal with 300, I don't know the money exchange rate, like the 300 uh, grand in uh, Bali's PayPal or whatever? Do you know anything about that? 300,000? No, no, I don't know about that. Okay, okay. That's a lot of money. Yeah. But anyway. What, wait a minute, I'm but mistaken. Bali, Did Carl, Bali, Bali, Bali claimed that Carl, I think Bali claimed that Carl got 300000 in Carl's PayPal account for, uh, you know, what, in donations. So I just wondered if, you know, any validity to that, if you would know anything. No, I never really got involved. I mean, uh, Carl, okay. Carl, was here for, Carl was here for maybe a few, a few months. And I stayed with Carl for the first week or so. We shared the same hotel room, uh, and um, you know, Bali, Bali, uh, without going into something, Bali sort of you know manipulated the situation. So Bali was the only one in the picture. I introduced Bali to Carl. That's, I'm the reason why Bali was on the show in the first place, calling in. Um, it, there was going to be another person, and I was going to pay Carl's fare to come to the UK because I'd been doing. Um, uh, you know, presentations uh, about car stuff on common law. So my stuff is, is uh, online anyway. If you YouTube Natural Law Society or on common law, the YouTube channel, and you put Colin Michael into YouTube, you'll see three years ago, maybe even longer, where I'm presenting Carl stuff. Yeah. So Valley's over here looking in a bit of stardom. I think he wanted to be famous. He's not really interested in That's just my opinion anyway. It's about people. It's about letting spreading the information. But it's a bit tainted if there's a price. Obviously, people need to be rewarded for their work that they do. But, you know, you can't be cold-hearted. If someone, that particular person that I was talking to you about, the £300, uh, he'd actually had 14 properties taken. Uh, he was he was in a you know a desperate situation. Okay, well, uh, is that it for you, Roddy? Well, Roddy. I always have more questions. Roddy. I was just going to ask about the haystack guy. 
if, if you know the thing about the guy who lost his case about his haystack that Bali was helping? I saw um, a brief video online. I think if you look on YouTube, the, the way the video is filmed, it looks as if that case was successful. So I don't know what's happened, but I, I did see a little update. It, it was someone who had built a home, and there was a it was disguised under a, a tarp. Is it his name? Is it is it Guy? Is it Guy Taylor? You're talking about Guy Taylor? No, not Guy Taylor. This this was a this was someone who obviously built. It looked as if he's built a property without the correct planning planning permission, and. Uh, based on the regulations and him being a man and the regulations for a person, then it looks like Bally had the uh, the court case thrown out. Yeah, hey, that's a good thing. It, it doesn't say that. that. It makes the assumption of that when you watch the video. It doesn't go into much detail. So maybe That'd be awesome if he did. Because the reason you can build stuff freely as a man or woman is as long as you don't agree to be permitted by a regulatory body, you're free to pretty much do as you wish as long as you don't harm anybody. But if you agree to their terms and building codes and get their license and permit, then you have to follow their rules kind of deal. That's right. That's right. If you ask for permission, you are now subject to the rules and regulations, whatever else. A guy in Canada had done that a few years ago. He used his wife was going to train to be a nurse or something, and she came back from school one day, and she said, hey, what's this artificial person? And that started, they, like, changed his whole life direction, and he started doing the research. Him and his wife ended up selling everything and buying a piece of property, and they just moved there and started building, you know, one of those earth ships, you know, where you build, like, tire wall and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, I like that. <laughs> the people came out there. It was like an inspector or something was like, "Hey, uh, you know, I've been sent over here to stop you because you don't have permits or anything." And he's like, "Oh, okay. Well, do you have any paperwork for me?" And he he's like, uh, "Give me your paperwork and and I'll look it over and uh, give me about three days and come back and we'll we'll talk again." So he's like, "All right, sure." And then he handed him the paperwork, and the guy left. A couple of days later, the guy came back, and he had gone over the paperwork with a fine-tooth comb, and the guy said, uh, hey, uh, I've read through your paperwork, and it says here that if I don't get the permit, then you are trespassing, and you're trespassing now, and I want you to leave, and that was it. They left. They never, never uh, bothered him again, as far as I know, and he he made a documentary about it. It's called Ungrip. He made his own constitution. Called what? It's called Ungrip. U N G R I P. Ungrip. Oh, okay. Un Ungrip. Ungrip. Yeah, it's a, okay. a little documentary about the guy's story. He made his own constitution, his own Declaration of Independence. He built his own house up there and he's just doing his own thing you know mm. yeah that's really good yeah, yeah. And, oh, well. uh, too uh, bad we can't all do that huh <laughs> <laughs> yeah right I would love to be able to do that 
Yeah. He, uh, he did but anyway. Studying. There's one thing that I want to put on the record here. Uh, is why I put my hand up earlier is because we were talking about the tax stuff and I wasn't able to catch uh, Pete before he left. But I've got some information here people might want to uh, look at or research if they're uh, interested in the Internal Revenue Service. It's called the Internal Revenue Tax and Audit Service. It is a for-profit General Delaware Corporation. It was incorporated on 7-12-33, and the file number is 0325720. And uh, you can just search, you know, Delaware Corporation by file number, and this uh, Internal Revenue Tax and Audit Service will come up. And you can click on that, and you'll see, like, who owns it and all this other pertinent information. And I have others, too, like, you know, Central Intelligence and Federal Reserve and Federal Land Acquisition, Social Security Corporation, Department of Health, Education, and Welfare. is also for-profit, General Delaware Corporation, Incorporated 11-13-89. File number 2213135. And, uh, you know, I haven't looked up all these, but I've got about five or six of them here. I, I've only looked up uh, United States of America Incorporated, which is incorporated in 41989 with file number 2193946. And I really looked into that one, and I found that it is owned by, quote, unquote, the company, right? And their street address is, uh, you know, somewhere in Delaware. This is a while ago when I was researching this, but I went to the street view, and it's just like this crappy little building, but apparently they manage the uh, the business there or it's a mailing address or something. I don't know if it's just a mailbox or what, but it's just a crappy little building, and uh, I thought it was quite funny. Am I am I muted? I don't know if I'm muted. Can you hear me now? I can, can I you not hear me? Hello. No, I'm sorry, I couldn't I hear, hear you. you. <laughs> oh, I'm I could hear you, you guys. Okay. You, you know, I have to fit, I have to fiddle with the wire to make it work. Un, unfortunately, I'm sitting here talking, I'm saying I can hear you guys, and then also I was saying we've done the two hours, so. I'm going to close out the call unless anybody has any final uh, comments. Colin? Hopefully I'll speak to you guys soon. Okay, great. I appreciate it. I appreciate everybody. I love you all. Take care of each other. We'll see you next time. Have a great weekend and like that. Thank you for coming and calling. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Good night. Good night. Good night.
You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.